You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Center, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Allison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 259 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with... Alison Tate, how are you, Al? I am okay. Just okay today? Not fair to middling, not awesome, not, you know. No, fair to middling. So, you know, we're getting towards, you know, I've been NaNoWriMoing now without the FOMO aspect of the NaNoWriMo FOMO. And um, I am at the point where I have settled into where I always settle which is mm. about 12 to 1300 words a day. So I good. am on, well, I'm pretty happy with it, but it's kind of like, it's a funny thing, you know, you sort of have this, I really honestly believe as a writer, you just have a rhythm and the rhythm, it's very hard to fight the rhythm of how your yes. words come together. Um, so the, I've averaged, yeah, around the 12 to 1300 mark. So I'm probably going to finish pretty much where I always finish, which is around about, you know, maybe forty to forty-five thousand words, and everyone's going to go, "Ow! I can't believe it!" And push it further and make the fifty. And I'm just going to be like, "I just, I just feel like you got to go with your natural algorithm, so to speak." Because I'm just—that's yes. pretty much just where I am. So some days I've done, you know, two thousand, and some days I've done six hundred and ninety-one. You know, it's that kind of rhythm. So I, um, but anyway, I'm pretty happy. It's all kind of coming together quite well. I've reached a massive plot hole, which I've realised has been been looming for about 25,000 words mm-hmm. but um I'm all right with that so I, I'm okay like that's where I am I'm okay and you well what about done. you well I was looking at I think it was Chrissy Bradley's post on um and she writes for uh, Dog's Life magazine and a number of other things and she's doing NaNoWriMo I was reading her post this morning and she had done 2,000, around about, I don't have the exact number, but around about 2,800 words. That's not the exciting part. In 25 minutes. Seriously? I don't think I, I, mean, I'm, I, type, <laughs> I type fast, babe, but do you, I don't think I could do that. Do you type that fast? I don't, I don't even know. I mean, I type faster than the average bear probably because been doing it for so long, but I don't even know if I would have done that in 25 minutes. Maybe she used a dictation kind of device oh, yeah. or something, but that's pretty impressive. That's and amazing. she's pretty she's pretty impressed like like good words she said. So good on you Chrissy. Yeah, wow, that's like a that's a torrent. That's a torrent mm. of words, isn't it? That's amazing. Yep, absolutely amazing. Uh, but we want to give a shout out to a whole bunch of awesome people. And if you continue with your NaNoWriMo journey, you may end up on this list one day. And that is um, all of the people in the Australian Writers' Centre community that is from alumni to current students to presenters 
who have published books this year. And we have a blog post about it, which we will put in the show notes. And this list is by no means exhaustive. We've actually um, got a selection. If we've missed you off the list, you know, or if your book has yet to come out, let us know because we'll just add you on. Um, but it's so incredible. There's so many people from the community who have published awesome books this year. And, um, like, I think there's currently in the list, there's 43, but I know we're going to add to it. Yes. Well, I think we need to give a shout out to Sandy Barker, who's about to publish her second book this year. And I think she's not on the list, but I know she's in our our podcast community. So she's definitely needs to be added to that list. But um, yeah, so 43 on this list. And I think that that is absolutely an incredible, incredible, um, you know, just, I don't know, what is it? Amazing. Amazing. I mean, well done to Joanna Nell. Yeah, who we recently uh, interviewed for her book, Single Ladies of Jacaranda Retirement Village. Fleur Ferris did our course um, a couple of years ago and now has released Risk and Black and Wreck and now found, like, she's just on a roll. It's oh, just is. incredible. So many, you know, Tanya Blanchard, she's, she's released The Girl from Munich and now – I think any day now is Suitcase of Dreams. It's just, it's just, you know, Shelley Unwin, Catherine Pelosi, all of you doing amazing things, amazing yes. things. And we could not be prouder of could any of you. And our yes. presenters as well. Big shout out Absolutely. to our presenters who also do amazing job. If you want to see the list, we'll put the link in the show notes, which of course you can find at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au. Now, Frances Chapman, who also recently did a course at the Australian Writers' Centre, she has won the prestigious Hardy Grant Egmont 2018 Prize for her debut YA novel, What It Takes. Pretty fantastic. Awesome, awesome, awesome. She's done lots of courses. She's done the six-month program, Write Your Novel, at the Australian Writers' Centre, and this is such an incredible coup. Well, not coup, really. Incredible recognition, incredible award to be to be um, given this prize. So fantastic! Yes, congratulations, Francis. Congratulations. Congratulations. Um, And in fact, Marissa Pintado, who we've had on the podcast before, uh, who's the publishing director at Hardy Grant Egmont, said, Francis's novel was an instant favourite among the judging team and we all loved its exploration of the music world and the push-pull tensions of modern fandom and romantic connection in the age of social media. I can't Mm -hmm. wait to share it with readers. So that's so cool. Can't wait for that to come out. And that so was a terrific interview as well, by the way. If yes, you haven't listened to absolutely. that interview with Marissa, go mm-hmm. back and find it because it was def- she was incredibly generous with her knowledge and um, definitely worth having a listen to. That was episode 182 if you want to have a look. All right. Now, we have an interesting point of conversation this week, don't we, Al? Oh, we do. It was something I wanted to talk about. It was actually something that I put in my newsletter that went out um, a few days ago. Um, And if you're not on my newsletter list, then you are missing amazing gems such as this. Um, Missing. Jokes. The I just wanted to talk about the fact. I I, it came from the fact that I I took part in a kind of a Twitter you know challenge type thing that that happens, um, which is instant. Uh, incidentally, is a terrific way to meet other writers online. Look for these things. This one was yeah. called Oz Writes. It runs once a month, and every second day there is a prompt 
um, for you to tweet using the hashtag OzWrites. And um, there's a whole bunch of authors and writers and, you know, different people doing it. And it's, as I said, it's a great way to build a community and it's a great way to find people to to connect with on Twitter. So I kind of jumped into it. Somebody else had shared it. We might even have talked about this uh, about the fact that I was doing it when I was doing it because I'm not doing it this month. It was last month. Um, but one thing that came out of it was that one of the tweets was, you know, how uh, was about literary festivals that you, that I that you'd been to that year, and mm-hmm. I listed the the festivals that I had been to, um, and and I've made the point that. I was presenting it at these festivals. There were five or six festivals that I went to this year. And I've made the point that, you know, I I used to go and watch and meet people um, and and enjoy them. And now I present, go and watch and meet people and enjoy them. And that was kind of the point that I made. And someone tweeted me back and the question was just this one line, how, capitals, how do you get invited to so many festivals? And Mm -hmm. I thought it was just something worth talking about because I think sometimes – um, particularly when you're starting out on, on you know, uh, particularly with your social media, with your writing and all that kind of stuff, you know, you can look at what someone else is doing and just be like, you know, overwhelmed um, as to how these things sort of come about. Um, but the point I wanted to make and the point, I mean, at, in, in, the, in the sort of gist of this particular tweet conversation, all I tweeted back was, you know, I am very lucky. Um, mm-hmm. But underneath the iceberg... <laughs> You know, the tip of that particular <laughs> iceberg. There was, of course, an essay uh, that I wanted to write because the only answer to that question is actually, you know, lots of hard work and mentioning the word platform. And it's a word that so many writers don't want to hear. It's a word that they, mm. you know, they just want to kind of write their books and they they want to believe that doing that is enough. But for most authors, you know, unless unless you, your book is sold for a million dollars and you have a publishing company behind you that is willing to throw an enormous amount of money into the marketing campaign for that book, the reality is that you have got to work extremely, extremely hard to get your book out there, keep your book out there and build a profile for yourself. If you want to be invited to, to present at writers' festivals, you need a profile for yourself, not just for your book. So that's a yeah. whole nother kind of cup of tea. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, it takes time, effort and hard work. And, um, you know, my platform obviously takes many forms, like beyond the fact that I've written six popular well-reviewed novels for children. Um, I also blog, there's this podcast, I write yeah. articles for other websites, I have two online Facebook communities, I do social media, I'm a member of many industry associations, I have a newsletter, mm. I actively help other Australian authors promote their books actively, I create mm. book lists, I do a whole lot of work for that kind of stuff. I participate as a volunteer at festivals, you know, the, the Shoalhaven Readers and Writers Festival, you know, my my entire role in that was voluntary and that was involved in getting a new festival off the ground and all of those different things. So I'm not I'm this is not me going, you know, look how amazing I am. This is me saying this is this is some of what you don't see. This is what goes yeah. on behind the scenes before you see somebody on a stage at a writers festival. And I think that it's um it's kind of you know, it's, it would be disingenuous of me just to be like, you know, I'm so lucky and it's amazing. I mean, it's true. I am very mm-hmm. lucky and I take every invitation with, I'd get so excited. I'm 
always thrilled to be part of those things because there's such a brilliant, brilliant way to kind of, you know, really immerse yourself in the in the um, in the industry. Like this is my chosen profession. This is what I do, yes. and I love the opportunity to to be part of it like that. Um, but it's also, you know, there's a lot going on behind the scenes that that gets you into a position where your profile is such that you will be invited to these things. So I just wanted to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that is a really good point. I think that building your platform is so, so important. And the reality is, because I've organized conferences and, you know, not just conferences, but when you're, say, curating a list of authors or not just authors, a list of anyone, it could be in any industry, um, as we ha- you and I have done many times in as journalists, because, you know, we've written listicles and stuff like that, the reality is that you Google somebody to see what's out there about them, to see whether there is any presence, to see whether other people have written about them, to see whether they even are on social media or whatever, so that you can gain an understanding of what they represent and who they're about. But sometimes you can't even gain an understanding of what they represent and who they're about because there's nothing about them online. So it is so important to have some kind of presence online, even if it's all just stuff that's in your control, that is – your own social media platform, your own and, and a social media platform that showcases you as a writer or at least displays the fact that you are a writer. Because um, I know a lot of people say, oh, but how do you get interviewed in The Guardian or how do you get your book reviewed or how do you get your profile? It doesn't matter. If you haven't done – if that hasn't happened to you yet, don't use that as an excuse. Just do the things that are within your control to build your author platform and to – Give yourself some kind of online presence so that when uh, festival organizers or journalists or whoever Google you, they don't come up with nothing, right? It's, no, and it's, it's and it's also yeah. start small. You don't have to you're like yeah, this is not small. you don't you don't have to be sort of presenting at Brisbane Writers Festival in your first week. <laughs> um, I so with regards to that, those so true. I've been I've been presenting in schools regularly, trying different things, do, pre- creating different presentations, creating different workshops. For a long time, I, I started out doing them for nothing because I mm. needed to practice. I knew that I hadn't done them before and I wanted yeah. to make sure that what I was doing was right. So I would go to my local schools and I would say, can I please use your grade fives as a guinea pig to trial this to trial this particular workshop that I put together or this yeah. particular presentation? And that's the kind of thing that you do. And then you build your confidence and you, you, you find out what works and what doesn't. You become somebody who can talk to three or 400 kids at once. and hold on to their attention and that's when you start to get invited to bigger you know schools programs like Brisbane Writers Festival which I did this year and having done that uh, I got immediately after that particular um that was that was a big room like I I was I have to confess just between you me and the you know million listeners that we have (laughs) that I was (laughs) I got I walked into that room on my first day and just went oh this is the space, is it? And they were like, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, right, because it was a big room. Um, okay. But it, it, it really was. was but, it, um, did that make you nervous? Oh, God, yes. Because, oh, you okay. know, you are, a, well, no, because you you are, this is, you are yeah. solely responsible for holding the attention that, yes. of 411 yeah. to 14-year-olds, which is what yeah, the age right. group was, wow. for an hour, for an hour. Yeah. So there was a little bit of, uh, how am I going to do this? Um, But then, you know, I got up there and I did it. And because of it, like two days later, I got an invitation 
from someone who had seen me at that festival to another festival mm. next year. So it's mm. kind of like it's one of those things where and, – and you know what? That's the other thing. Do the ones that scare you. Do them, mm. you know, and th- they're all scary to start with. Like the first one you do, terrifying, and then the fifth one you do, terrifying, and the first time you do year nine, terrifying. All of that stuff. <laughs> oh my god, year nine! I know, year nine. Oh my <laughs> But um, you know, but do them because, and particularly do them small to start with, yeah. so that you can build your confidence. Because you know, there's there's nothing worse than kind of dying in front of 400 year nines, but it's okay oh. to die in front of 20, you know, because, you know, they, they, they can almost take pity on you at that point. Yeah. But yeah. Anyway, that's oh. all I wanted to say. Just like I, think about those kinds of things and do the scuff that scares you. Don't say no. Like if, if your first yeah. instinct is no, think about why and then like yeah. try to work through that. Absolutely. And I agree with you 100% about starting small. Just start with 20 people or start with a small class, start with a small group or whatever. Mm, mm. Um, and you'll be surprised at who might be in the audience who will then invite you to the next one. That's uh, yeah, yeah, really, really, yeah. really good yeah. idea. All right. Yeah. We want to say a big thanks to everyone who took part in Furious Fiction November. The challenge was to write a story with a two-word opening sentence set in a supermarket, which includes something breaking at some point. So we received hundreds of amazing entries, which is especially impressive considering many writers were also participating in NaNoWriMo on the same weekend. The winning story and some of the shortlisted favourites are ready to enjoy on our blog now. So just go to furiousfiction.com.au. And if you're ready to do it all again, Furious Fiction December kicks off on Friday 7th December with another exciting new challenge. So you need to make sure you're in the fan club and each challenge will be sent to you as soon as it's live. So at 5 p.m. on the Friday, you're given the parameters and then your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to write 500 words. You've got 55 hours, which means you have until midnight on the on Sunday to submit it and you could win $500. So go to furiousfiction.com.au. All right. Now, Al, um, when you were young, much younger. <laughs> you mean just a few years ago? Just a few years ago. Yeah. Did you read Dolly? Yeah, of course. Didn't everyone? <laughs> Didn't well, the whole world you... read Dolly back in the day? It, it was huge. It was the thing. It was the Bible. I feel like wasn't we're dating it? ourselves immediately by saying I that know. just quietly. I know. Know. But I'm um, sure that there's many listeners out there who are right there with us right now. Who can relate? Do you mm. remember reading a writer called Stuart Coop? I do. And? Funny. Yeah. Funny. funny. That's just like, that's all I think <laughs> of when I think of Stuart Coop. Funny. He's released a new book and you have a chance, well, listeners have a chance to win one of three copies. Now, Stuart is, was really big into music writing and, he, you know, he ended up managing bands and stuff like that as well, as well as writing for Dolly for, a, a, you know, a, a formative period in our lives. Uh, so his latest book is called Roadies, The Secret History of Australian Rock and Roll. This is your backstage pass to the hidden side of the music industry, the tantrums, the fights, the tensions, the indulgence, the sex, the alcohol, the drugs. The roadies see it all. They know everything about the pre- and post-show excesses. They bear witness to overdoses, groupies, the obsessive fans. They are part of and often organise 
all the craziness that goes on behind the scenes of the concerts and pub gigs you go to. And now they're sharing their secrets. So if you would like your chance to win one of three copies, then just go to writerscentercomau slash win. Uh, entries close on the 26th of November. That's writerscentercomau slash win. I actually remember one of the first articles of Stuart's that I read was about groupies in Dolly. I even remember the Sarah Nursey was on the cover and I remember reading this going, oh my God, I had no idea that these things existed called groupies. I was very young. You're hilarious. How well how how, how, you, well how do you remember this? That is fascinating. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It really because it really stuck in my mind just the really? way it was written. I was like, this is so cool. I want to do this. And I remember keeping I want to that do this? article. <laughs> not not be a groupie. <laughs> no. <laughs> you are so funny. I can just see you. I want to be a groupie. I'm gonna go and learn how to do that. And no, you <laughs> you would put yourself in a course and you'd be done by the end of the week. <laughs> No, I didn't want to be a groupie. I wanted to be the writer. I wanted to be Stuart. Okay. <laughs> Which, like of course, is a- much better. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> but we that is the perfect segue to let you guys know that, in fact, Stuart is our interview this week. But before we get onto that, Al, are you ready for the word of the week? No, I think I'd rather talk about roadies a bit more, which I think should be an A, a movie, and B, I also am a roadie, so I have my own secrets, but mine oh, aren't yay. very exciting yet because my my star is only 14, but, you know. And by the time you they get interesting, I won't be a roadie anymore, but whatever. Um, yes, I'm totally ready for the word of the week. Awesome, because it is – now, let me know if you've used this word before – eucatastrophe. Now, I'm not saying you are, are a catastrophe. I'm saying the word <laughs> You catastrophe. That's E U, and then the word catastrophe. Right. No have one has you? ever used that word, Valerie. Well, well they I'm might. Ju- have. I'm just saying that that is a word that I mean. Have you ever heard it used in a you know anywhere? Have you seen no, it? No, but I haven't heard many so of the word of the week words used. Hashtag you catastrophe. <laughs> well, yeah. What the does it interesting mean? Tell thing. me what it means. All right. It's it's actually kind of the opposite to catastrophe because eucatastrophe means happy ending. Now, see, if I was Dean, I'd make some joke about massage with eucatastrophe here, but no. Yeah, or something about that's what happens when you have groupies. Yeah, yeah. But let's exactly. move on. Instead, oh, we're not, we wouldn't we're not make Dean, jokes so let's No, 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 no. <laughs> so this week's interview is none other than Stuart Coop, who was one of the inspirations for me becoming a writer uh, because of his articles in Dolly that I read as a 12-year-old. <laughs> and, um, and of course, Stuart is talking about uh, his writing career and uh, his, his latest book about roadies. Let's have a listen to Stuart. Thanks so much for joining us today, Stuart. Thanks, Valerie. Your book, Roadies, The Secret History of Australian Rock and Roll. Now, many people know that you have been around the music industry for basically ever, Um, but what made you decide now's the time to write a book about roadies? 
Uh, a couple of things made me think that roadies were an interesting subject. I, I, I was finishing off my biography of Michael Gadinsky a couple of years ago, and I was starting to think, you know, what what great Australian music stories hadn't been done because I've increasingly realised that my writing is a lot of, you know, recording stories of people who, for very obvious reasons, won't be around forever to tell those stories. So I, I was thinking about what to do, and I, I was being helped in my research for the Michael Gadinsky book by a guy by the name of Adrian Anderson, a former roadie. And he was telling me about Melbourne in the late 1960s, early 1970s, you know, the period when Michael Gadinsky emerged as a force in the music industry, because I, I wasn't in Melbourne then and I wanted some colour, I wanted some names and bits and pieces. And Adrian told me about the formation of an organisation called the Australian Road Crew Association. And initially I went, oh, that's good, you know, you know, roadies getting together and chatting about good gigs, bad gigs, people they like working for, people they didn't like working for. And um, But then Adrian told me that there was a far more serious reason for the formation of, of ARCA. Yeah. Uh, and that was, Valerie, that anecdotally Australian roadies have four to five times the national suicide rate. Yeah. And that floored me. Um, and I guess I... I started to go, well, why? Because on many levels, roadies would look to have this fantastic life. You know, they, they mm. travel around Australia or they travel around the world. You know, some of them fly, they stay in good hotels, they get to go and watch rock and roll concerts every night. Uh, and I'm going, what causes or creates an environment when so many of them find themselves in in dire circumstances, because aside from the suicide rate, you know, there, there's a massive litany of, of mental health issues. Mm. So I, I thought, okay. And then soon afterwards, uh, I was watching a, an ARIA awards telecast and, uh, and Neil Finn was getting an award and, and he, he thanked his roadies. Mm -hmm. And the fact that that stopped me in my tracks meant something to me because I went, how, how infrequently do we hear this? Mm. You know, normally it shows in that award ceremonies, you know, artists will, you know, they'll thank their girlfriend, their boyfriend, their boyfriend's girlfriend, <laughs> their manager, their, you know, their record label, their cat, you know, their grandmother, <laughs> um, all of their fans, you know, anyone that they could possibly think of to thank, particularly if they're getting multiple awards. Mm. And it's really, how, how often do you hear them say thank you to the, the people that basically spend their working days and nights making them look and sound as good as they possibly can. Yeah. And so I went, I went, maybe there's just something here. And, and I guess, you know, there was also the fact that no one had done it before. There is, there is one book about, uh, well, written by an Australian roadie. Ron Clayton wrote, uh, it was written a book about his, wait for it, 50 years as roadie for the Ted, for the Ted Mulry gang. Oh my okay. God. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. It's one way of putting it. Uh, so, you know, 50, 50 years just working with one band. That was really the only book. So, so that's a long winded answer to, to why I just started to decided to investigate the, the world of, of roadies. So once you decided that, did you, how long did it take before you ended up with the first draft and how did you decide which roadies were going to end up being profiled? Because there's, there are these great vignettes of all these different roadies with different bands, different experiences. How did you decide which ones made it in? 
Look, I could have I could have written seven war and pieces about yeah. Rhodey. Um, you know, there, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. So that's that's a good question. Look, what, what I I started because you know Rhodey's a notorious for only talking to other roadies. You know, there is a rock and roll cliche that, you know, what happens on the road stays on the road. Mm. Uh, and, and that, to a large extent, is true. You know, they, they are the custodians of, of all secrets, you know, good and bad secrets. So I was, you know, and, and since the book came out, people said, how did you get them to talk? They don't talk to anyone except themselves. And, and I adopted what I've now come to call the Tony Soprano principle. Uh, for anyone who watches The Sopranos or loves The Sopranos like I did. It's basically like if you want to hang out with the mob and, and get to know them, you go to Tony Soprano, right? You go, you go to the big guy, and then once you've got his, his stamp of approval, then any door that needs to be opened opens, right? So I'm not for a moment going to suggest that he's ever had anything to do with organised crime, but I went to the, the man that I consider to be the Tony Soprano of Australian roadies. Right, and um, his name is Howard Freeman. Uh, he's a very, he's a very big man, covered in tattoos, uh, a very funny man, a very loud man. He is seventy years of age and is still working um, in the music and entertainment industry. So I went to Howard and I got his okay. Then I went to another legend from the, and they are legends, you know, from from because that's an overused word, but the, these these figures from that era, you know, I think justify the use of the word legendary, particularly in the music industry. Uh, and then I, via Howard, I also went to Scrooge Madigan. Scrooge does spell his name like the Donald Duck comic yes. uh, with a dollar sign for the for the S. Uh, he writes it that way and that's how it appears in the book. Uh, and, and then via those two, I went to some of the other figures from that era, you know, Mickey Cox, Nicky Campbell, John Darcy. And so once I had their okay when i went to some of the younger roadies and you know and they were going oh i'm not sure i want to talk to you you know oh i'm a bit uncertain about this mm. uh, i said well howard's talked to me Scrooge has talked to me you know mickey's talked to me darcy's talked to me and they go oh okay and in a couple of cases i had to ask howard can you just call him and tell him that it's a really good idea that he talks to me now to go yeah leave it with me uh, so, right um, and then i let them be in some ways a sounding board. You know, I, I listened to them um, about who I should talk to and I talked to other music industry figures and I felt my way through it, you know, at the very end of what, or what I thought was the end of the research. I, I called Howard up and I said, uh, you know, I'm done. You know, I've I, I talked to, you know, 55 or 60 roadies, you know, most of whom are in the book. And he said, have you talked to Kerry Cunningham? And I said, no, I haven't, but I'm really, you know, like I'm, I'm done and I'm finished. He said, you're not finished. You haven't talked to Kerry. Call Kerry. Then tell me you're finished. Right. And mm. on, uh, on uh, Easter Monday of uh, this year, 2018, I walked out of Kerry Cunningham's uh, apartment over in Leichhardt in Sydney after three or four hours with Kerry going, thank you so much, Howard. That was one of the best interviews that I'd done. Wow. So I, so I had all of this. And then I, the the hardest thing, Valerie, was actually trying to work out how to write it, mm. and that that took me forever because I I didn't really want to compent compent oh, uh, I didn't want to put them in compartments. That's a better way of saying okay. what I'm struggling to pronounce, <laughs> isn't it? Uh, and so I didn't want to sort of go, okay, let's have a chapter about 
performance. Let's have a chapter about lighting. Right. Let's have a chapter about drugs. Let's have a chapter about sex. I thought, no, that's not going to work. And I kept going, how do I write this? How do I write this? And I also said to everyone who asked, I said, well, one thing I can tell you right now is that it won't be chronological. Yeah, there's mm-hmm. no way. Mm-hmm. Of course it's chrono- Of course it's chronological. <laughs> uh, so I, I was going, how do I write this? And I was going to my publisher going, I've got all this stuff. I just don't know how to write this book. And then I just sort of, as I'm prone to do, I just sort of wandered around my home thinking, what's the common point that links all of these people? And I went, it just hit me like, you know, with that moment of clarity and so obvious that probably everyone I knew had been just waiting for the idiot to work it out himself, um, that what linked them all was that they were just amazing characters. Yeah. So, So that's when I decided to not try and write this sort of intertwined narrative about roadies. I was just going to look at 50 or so of them Mm. and their particular time and place working as roadies, fully aware that some of the stories might overlap. You know, they all travelled a lot. They all Mm. hated loading in upstairs and all that. And and that I would, in fact, put them in a a loose chronological order because I also realised that as the decades went by, there was a difference in the conversation. There was a difference in the characters. There was a difference in the way they spoke, the lifestyle they they led, their approach to their work. And so, so I decided um, to do it that way. Um, and, and I think it works. It, it interests me that I don't quite start with a woman, but I, I almost begin with a woman and I end with two women um, because, you know, the, one of the traditional stereotypes about um, roadies is I should point out that Australia invented the expression roadie because we add a Y to everything. <laughs> uh, everywhere else in the world, they're just road crew, right? But of yes. course, in Australia, they've got to be a roadie, mate. Um, and uh, so, uh, but the, you know, it, it's considered a very male world. And it, it, look, it largely has been. It's changing now. But I was pleasantly surprised to realise that, you know, there had been a number of very, very significant women working in the world of road crews um, over the years. So it was it was good to acknowledge that, particularly um, Tana Douglas, who mm. without question, Valerie, is, is the world's first female roadie. And, and look, there, there have been maybe 20 books written about ACDC, right? Mm-hmm. And I think one of them maybe mentioned Tana. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking to myself, okay, let me just think this through for a minute, right? She's a woman. She's the world's first female roadie. She's Australian. She mixed sound. She didn't just push boxes and PAs around. She was actually their sound engineer when she was 16 and 17. Yes. I mean, she floored me when I said... She floored me when I said, yeah, how old were you when you finished? She said, almost 18. Mm. And I went to myself, doesn't this warrant something significant in all these books on ACDC? Mm. You know, how come, you know, woman, first roadie, sound engineer for ACDC, kind of, oh, that's not important. You know, oh, why would we put, and I just went, you've got to be joking. I mean, here's a, here's a really, really significant 
person in in the history of Australian live music, for starters, you know. Um, so so it was also great to to tell her story, and and she's currently working on a memoir, which you know I hope hope she gets published. And uh, you obviously know how to get interesting stories out of them, and I don't mean you know the sex, drugs, and rock and roll stories. I mean um, you're able, obviously, able to ask questions to get other things like Tana talking about how she wanted to go to Woodstock and her dad was really cranky and you know, all that kind of stuff. So apart from the obvious sex, drugs and rock and roll stories, how do you then get the other stuff out of them that really, that, that's unexpected from a roadie? Um, well, look, yeah, I, one of the things I told them right at the start, Valerie, when I approached all of them, I said, I don't want to write a book, which is just sex and drug stories. Mm. I said, I said, they get boring to me. They're probably really boring to you. And therefore, I assume they're probably really, really boring to a reader <laughs> after a while. Um, I look, I've been interviewing um, for now probably about 40 years. Mm. And I, I guess what I've learned, I, I never really prepare any questions. Mm. And I look. I, ha- I have the if all else fails, you know, ask them this question. Um, but but I, I never. I I can't remember the last time I walked in into an interview with a written list of questions or anything. I look. I I think um, I listen. I've I've learnt to listen, um, and I and I've learnt to to just quietly probe and. I do all I do all of my interviews face to face. I really well. I did a couple for this book on the phone, um, reluctantly. Um, I like spending time with the people. I like watching their body language. I like to be able to see when they they warm to a topic, or when they slightly bristle. Um, I like to see them in their environment. One of the um, the best compliments that I was ever paid in my the early days of me learning to be a journalist uh, was, was a, a really great Australian woman writer. You know, Annie Burton um, came up to me one day um, and she said, Stuart, you've got really great eyes. And I thought she was coming on to me. Right. <laughs> and, uh, but then I realized, no, that she was in fact saying that uh, she said, you hardly right. ever look anyone. She said, you hardly ever look anyone in the eye. And I said, okay, so what's great about my eyes? Because she said, well, you're, you're, your eyes are flicking around and you're watching and looking at everything that's in the room. And I said, I bet, and I bet you could walk out of the room and you could tell out of a hotel room with a rock star, you could tell me every magazine and book that's by in the room, you know, what's on the, the room service, you know, food that they've had and, you know, what they're watching on television, what's on their tape player or CD player and so forth. So, so I, I kind of just try and, and also, you know, I learned early on that, you know, more often than not when you're talking to musicians, and I think it kind of goes to an extent for road crew, in most cases the last thing they want to talk about is music. Mm-hmm. You know, they, 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 they create it, they do it, but, you know, it's like you walk in and go, oh, you know, hi, Bill, Fred, Sue, Jane, you know, look, let's talk about the recording of the new record. They have so moved beyond that, and they've probably been asked it fifty thousand times. And so, I, you know, I've had conversation, you know, with with Mick Jagger about cricket. He much preferred talking to me about cricket than he did to talk about, you know, the Rolling Stones. You know, I walked in once. I walked into, I did an interview with Sting, 
um, who I find insufferably pretentious and boring. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I was talking to him at the end of a, a day, you know, those press days where they've done, you know, 15 interviews. And I thought, he is so sick of every question. And I thought, look, let's just try something. So I sat down in front of him and I thought, God, this could go really badly, really quickly. I could get thrown out of this hotel room in about 30 seconds. But I looked at him and I said, Sting, um, what's your favourite colour? And he spent 45 minutes telling me why it was black. Wow. And, and, and I, I, he was really warming to this and, uh, and I got a great piece. <laughs> yeah. and, um, and, and so you just, you, just, you know, I, I guess I'm not afraid to throw curveball questions at them and, you know, and just probe a little bit, you know, and ask them maybe, you know, you, sometimes you, you actually push the boundaries of asking some personal stuff. And, yeah. and, and when you're doing it face-to-face, you can just see if they're shutting down or yeah. if they're a little twinge where you go, okay, maybe we'll just back off this now. Um, so I think, I think it, was, it was just, I, I, I just chat with people, you know, just hang out with them and, and talk to them. Yeah. So you say you've been doing this for 40 years. So take me back 40 years ago, if you can, <laughs> if you can and just maybe talk me through how did you get into writing in the first place and why? Like did you always want to get into writing and how did it happen? Yeah, I did. I started my first, I mean, I had, I had an amazingly supportive um, teacher called John Woodruff. I, I grew up in Tasmania um, in Launceston and I, thanks to the encouragement of John, I actually started my first magazine when I was about 14 right? um, at school. I mean, it was ostensibly a school magazine. It was called Labyrinth. And, um, but it was really an excuse for me to write about music that I loved. Uh, and then I put the obligatory sports news and, um, you know, sporting results and all that sort of stuff in there as well. Um, but I, yes, I look, I always just, I don't have a musical bone in my body. So clearly becoming a musician was, was not an option. Uh, but I loved expressing, I mean, I still think that at 62, you know, I think of myself as a music fan and I've always wanted just to convey my enthusiasm and excitement for music to other people. Um, the same person who told me I had great eyes said, always write like you talk, Stuart. You know, yeah. just, just the way you talk is fantastic. Try and write like that. Um, and so I, I had this magazine. Then I ended up going to Fiddler's University in, in Adelaide. And I didn't finish my degree because I got bored, but I did become one of the editors of Empire Times, which was the Flinders University magazine. Uh, and then I started a, magazine, a punk rock fanzine in the mid-70s called Street Fever, which evolved into one called Roadrunner. Then I got, because I, and I used to goad Anthony O'Grady, the editor of Ram magazine in Sydney, going, oh, here we are, the new kids, you know, your, your, your magazine's tired and boring, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and he rang me one day and he said, dear boy, would you like to come to Sydney and work for a real magazine? Wow. And uh, so I did, but I, I don't... Um, I I still type with I don't have a university degree. I still type with one finger. Really? I 
Oh yeah, I can. People say it's like watching a chicken. You know, <laughs> oh I can. I can almost touch type about eighty words a minute with one finger. Oh my god! Uh, I use the other hand to space. You know, I go. You know, yes. not all one finger. I mean, I space bar with the left hand and 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 type with, with one finger. I I don't know how to do it any other way. So I. I write millions and, well, I have written and had published millions and millions of words and they're all typed with one finger. Um, so, I, and I just, I really just did it because, and, I, and I read a lot, you know, I, I, and I still read a, a stupid amount. I, I only turn the television on when the swans are playing. Um, <laughs> and, um, and, and I just, I read good music writing. I read good journalism, good writing in general. Um, I copied as a kid when I look back, you know. What do you I, mean copied? I, oh, I almost rewrote famous, you know, music writers, you know, in, in the very early days. You know, I, I was so inspired by by their way of writing. I could see that I was using this the same phrases, the same descriptive words. And, and, and I, I didn't have my own voice then. I mean, I hadn't, I hadn't right. learnt who I was as a writer in those days. So I was, I was just trying to be my heroes and my heroes were a combination of musicians and writers. Yes. Um, yes. So, well, uh, so well, I, uh, no, no, you go on, please. <laughs> so I just, I just, I really um, just did it. And then, and then I got to a period, uh, you know, after, after Ram, you know, I, I, I the, the editor, one of the editors at the Sun Herald newspaper um, made this magnificent decision that they should maybe get someone instead of having the motoring writer also write the music column. <laughs> they should maybe get they should maybe get someone who knows about music to write the music column. And I thought that's great. I don't drive, so I'm not going to write the motoring column. Uh, and, and I look, I just I just did it. I kept learning. I kept listening to people. I you know I I got some really great simple advice at the Sun Herald, particularly working for, you know, a proper, uh, you know, the, at that point, the most, you know, the biggest selling newspaper in the country, you know, David Dale, who was my editor there, you know, he just, he told me some simple things that, you know, and I, I say to people still this day, you know, he said, you know, if you can't, if you, if your first paragraph is not interesting to hold a reader's attention, why in heaven's name, Stuart, would you assume they're going to read paragraphs two, three, four and onwards? Yeah, you know, yep. and 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 he, you know, in journalism, he said, you know, you, your first paragraph should relate to you, to your final paragraph, you know. And he taught me how to, you know, tell a story within five hundred words or a thousand words or fifteen hundred words. You know, they're really, really simple things, which sadly, you know, I realise are not being probably taught to a lot of people. Um, these days yeah um, I have to say your first paragraph or your first few paragraphs of even though you say that it's loosely chronological your book actually opens with a scene from Cold Chisel which is mm. a bit out of chronological order and but it's such like it just sets it it just starts off with a bang and it just makes you want to turn the page and keep on going because it, it is it's that it's the power of that first few paragraphs um and uh, I have a confession to make to you, Stuart. Mm -hmm. and, and I already know. We, I already know what it is. But go on. Do you? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so. So and and well, does it, does it, start, does it start with D? 
It does. It starts with mm. D. That's right. So <laughs> I think I confessed this to you over Twitter like f five years ago or something. But anyway, yeah. I'm now going to tell the world. Um, so for listeners, I actually started reading Stuart when he wrote for Dolly. And I was, I must have been 12 or 14 or something. Mm -hmm. And uh, to this day, I'll never forget um, one of the first articles that I read that you wrote and I just went, oh, my God, this is amazing. I want to do this. And to this day I can still see it was Sarah Nursey on the cover and your article was on groupies and I just mm. read everything that you wrote after, mm. uh, uh, after that point. And it was um, – and it was just the way the story was told. It was not told in a – even though it was accurate, it was, you know, full of facts and all the rest of it, it's, 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 it's painting a picture. It's putting you right there at the scene. It is. It's, it's the thing about your eyes. It's about including all of the other little bits of detail that really bring it to life. And, um, yeah, so you were a huge influence in me wanting to pursue that path. So well, um, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Dolly, Dolly, Dolly is is it's, it's a it's a very strange one, and I'm I'm of course still humbled by the impact that it's had, you know, on you and and other people because it, I suspect Valerie, it'll be the one thing that that will stay with me forever. I mean, I I, I certainly know over the years. If I call up, say, a publisher, you know, I spent almost 20 years being a crime fiction reviewer for the um, for the Sydney Morning Herald, and because uh, uh, I got a bit tired, I wanted a break from music writing, and I, I love crime fiction. But uh, but I remember distinctly, you know, I, I would ring up publishing companies, and I'd go, you know, can I possibly get a copy of the new, you know, P.D. James or Lawrence book and blah blah blah, and uh, and and they'd say, oh yes, of course. Uh, what was your name? And and I'd give them my name, and then if it was a woman of what I guess to be a certain uh, name, yes. the applause, <laughs> and I and I grew to know what was coming, and, and it, the, the next the next words were not the Stuart Coop from Dolly, <laughs> and I go, yeah, that's me, that's me. Forget that I'm reviewing for the Sydney Morning Herald, and I've done all these other things, but yeah, I'm that guy from Dolly. <laughs> that's um, I, look, I think I was I was lucky uh, that I had that opportunity, and and I also. I realised again the impact of um, of Dolly when when Facebook became a big thing, because I I started to get an inordinate number of friend requests from women, oh. and 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 I usually accept them, and and uh, and then I I you know a lot of times I get a note from them saying. Uh -huh. Thank you. You know, I grew up in Wandong in Bunbury. You know, yeah. the, the ones that really touched me were were particularly from from women who'd grown up in, in regional Australia. Yeah. Um, and they would say, you know, I read what you wrote in Dolly. For people listening to this, it was in the mid nineteen eighties. Um, and they they said, you know, you turned me on to Bruce Springsteen, or yes. because of you, I listened to the Go Betweens, or I, you know, and they'll talk about various. Um, you know, musical things or whatever that was, you know, and, and the Dolly thing was weird because as you would know, I became this, you know, quote unquote superstar, you know, for, you know, because I mean, partly my, you know, Lisa Wilkinson who, got, who employed me in the first place, you know, they blocked my eyes out so no one knew what I, you know, supposedly, you know, looked, knew what I looked like. And looking back at the Dollies, they did a really bad job of blocking my eyes out. Um, but I, I, I just was 
they gave me a lot of freedom yeah. to to write um, about really whatever I I wanted to. And, and of course, as you would know, but maybe people listening won't know, is you know part of my thing was that I was very critical of, of so many of the the things that the typical Dolly reader held near and dear. You know, there was a running gag that I hated Duran Duran um, and Spandau Ballet and a whole lot of things like that. And, of course, the Dolly Reader really couldn't stand it because I got to hang out with Duran Duran yes. and Spandau Ballet and all that. And then I'd go, oh, yeah, you know, they're really boring. You know, I just spent the day, hang- you know, talking with Duran Duran. You know, you haven't missed anything. They're really dull. Uh, and, uh, and they're, of course, tearing their hair out going, I would give anything to spend, you know, 20 yes. minutes with Duran Duran. So, uh, so it was, uh, it was a, you know, it, look, it was a fortunate um a fortunate time. And I think again, Valerie, it was, it was just that thing of those stories. I mean, I wrote like I talked, you know, they, they they were me having a yarn or, you know, I've always thought that, you know, it's, you're talking, you know, and I do, I do a lot of radio these days and I have done, you know, for a long time now. And it's the same thing, you know, uh, it's second nature for me to talk on the radio as if I'm talking to this one person. And so what I've always tried to do with my writing is go, hey, it's you and me, Valerie. No one else exists in this conversation. We're just talking about, you know, how great the models were or, you know, or, you know, this experience or why Duran Duran completely suck or whatever um, we may be talking to. And I, and I guess that's, you know, and, and that comes through, I guess, to an extent in roadies. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not good at using big words. I'm not good at, um, you know, flowery stroke, poetic. Um, you know, I'm good at, you know, well, I've become better, I should say. You know, at, at direct talking words that we understand, expressions that we understand, um, and and just talking to you about particular, you know, in this case, you know, roadies and, and so forth. With something like roadies and all of the music stuff that you write, obviously you've got a wealth of experience and, and knowledge and a, a ton of interviews in, in your brain somewhere that you can draw on. Do you actually remember, have an encyclopedic memory or do you also keep meticulous notes because – I know I wouldn't be able to retain all that information in my head. No, no, I, I, I don't. I mean, I, I, I have a fairly good memory, but I also have um, what I realise some incredible blank spots. You know, um, someone will show me a piece or talk about something I've written. Oh God, I've got no recollection of writing that whatsoever. Um, you know, maybe the drugs were better when I was younger. Uh, but, um, you know, look, I mean, I, I, I'm surprised at what I can remember and what comes to mind. I'm not a completist. You know, I, I don't understand, you know, people will go, you must be an, a music obsessive. And I go, no, I'm not. I mean, I'm obsessive about music, but I, you know, I don't think I own every Bob Dylan record and Bob Dylan's one of my heroes. And in fact, I don't know if I own every Bob Dylan record. And you know what? I don't really care. You know, I can find them if I want them. Bruce Springsteen looms so large in my world. I don't think I actually have every Bruce Springsteen record these days. I certainly don't have every B-side and every, you know, unreleased this, that and other. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not wired like that. And I'm not, um, I'm not one of these 
um, nerds that can go, oh, yeah, that was on the B-side, that was blah, 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 and the catalogue number is, you know. I'm, I'm more likely to remember some, you know, anecdote or, or what someone was wearing at a particular gig or, um, you know, so, some, some more colourful or interesting little sidelight to two things. So, no, I, I don't... Um, I, I, I've never kept what I've written. I mean, I, you know, I have something somewhere, but I, I don't, again, have the sort of mind that is going to put things in filing cabinets yeah, and yeah. order them. You know, that's, that's if, if anyone's vaguely interested when I'm no longer around, you know, I'll give them something to do for a few years. Um, and so I, 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 I don't, um, I don't, you know, yeah, there, there are definitely interviews and, things that have happened where I go, what? No, I didn't. I've never spoken to them. And then someone <laughs> go, well, um, here's the piece you wrote about them. And yeah. go, okie dokie, all right. You know, but I, I can't remember, for instance, we just talked about um, Mick Jagger. Now, you know, I can remember talking to him about cricket, but what I remember more is, you know, having my photo taken with, with him at the George Sank Hotel in Paris on on the balcony and and I remember more the fact that we were kept waiting he kept the kept the photographer waiting half an hour because he had to get a footstool to stand on because he was embarrassed that he was going to look so short next to me oh. you know like I am not eight foot tall I'm not even six <laughs> foot tall uh but I'm clearly taller than Mick Jagger yes. um, so you 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 remember like all of those yeah. little things you know I ended up getting the use of his suite in that hotel for a night because he'd he'd flown back to to London. You know, I can probably tell you everything that was in the minibar. I can tell you, you know, what the what colour the couch was that I slept on using his phone, the phone in his room to ring all my friends around the world saying so where I am. Um, <laughs> but I don't remember much about the interview, you know. So uh, you know, it's so it's it's little bits and pieces. Uh, what are you working on now? Now that this book is done and it's released, are you working mm-hmm. on your next project? Yeah, I'm writing um, something I've wanted to do for a long time and just literally as Rhodes was finished. I mean, I'm a, I'm a great believer in karma and things happen for a reason. But uh, I had been pestering Paul Kelly and his manager for about, well, like you see, the very first interview I did was with Paul Kelly in June 1978. Uh, that sounds very authoritative. I wouldn't have been able to tell you that until I found that piece. Right. Okay. <laughs> so it sounds like I've got this amazing memory. I can name the month and the year, but no, I couldn't up until recently. I thought it was. I actually thought it was 1976. Uh, so I was only out by two years. But um, and then I was, of course, Paul Kelly's manager for a large part of the 1980s. Uh, but I and Paul has written his own book, How to Make Gravy, which has been, you know, one of the, the more successful. Uh, books written by an Australian musician. I mean, I think it's only been probably superseded by the two Jimmy Barnes books. Um, and uh, but I, I just have been thinking there's a really great book in Paul Kelly. All the stuff that he doesn't put in his own book. Uh, you know, his own book is over 600 pages, and it's 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 a it's a masterful piece of writing because you know it kind of tells you everything and nothing about Paul um, and so so I thought you know that there is still a, a great book to write about 
him. And, I, and I've been, you know, just literally at the moment thinking, what's not in his book? And of course, one of the things that's not in his book is, is the voices of everyone else around him who have been involved. So I'm at the moment um, tracking down all of the members of the High Rise Bombers, which was his first band, and then the Knots, which was his other first band. Um, or his second band, I should say. You can't have another first band. Um, and um, so uh, so he, he has given this book his blessing and has agreed to talk to, and sit for some long interviews uh, towards the end of the project. So, so that's you know I want it, I want it to be about you know his life and times and you know the Australia that he has come from, the Australia that he's written about, um, and, and something a little bit more than just you know oh he made his second record on this date. You know, so yes. I, I'm. I'm at the moment, you know, he grew up in Adelaide and was in Adelaide in the early 70s before I went there to go to university. You know, so at the moment I'm reading a lot just and talking to people, not so much about music. I'm just trying to get, you know, information about what Adelaide was like in the late mm. 60s and early 70s, what it was like politically, what it was like socially, what it was like economically, you know, what music was around, you know, was it as radical in the early 1970s as it became in the mid-1970s or was in the mid-1970s when I was there. Uh, you know, and all, all of that sort of stuff and trying, trying to place place him in in that world. Mm. So that's that's probably, you know, it's, it's due in theory to come out towards the end of the year. I mean, I've, I've had three books in three years. 2019. I'm having a. Uh, there will not be a book. I don't think in 2019. Right. So um, uh, I think this will be towards the end of 2020. May, maybe even later. Right. Depends. I mean, it's, it's a big project. I want it like with all of my books. I want to do it right. Yeah. Uh, and we'll just uh, we'll just see it. It might it, look. It might come quickly, and we might be having this conversation about this time next year, and you're going to go, God, you wrote that quickly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know yet. Don't okay. Know. And so finally, related to that, what would be, say, your top three tips for when people are writing nonfiction and for them, what are your suggestions on what they need to be aware of in order to bring it to life, in order to make it not just a you know, recitation of facts, in order to write like Stuart Coop? Uh, look, I mean, I, it's, it's all about storytelling. You know, it's all about trying to get the, you know, for every section or chapter in roadies, which is, you know, an average of about 1800 to 2000 words, you know, that's probably distilled from maybe four, four or five hours of conversation. Uh, and one thing I'm a real sticker on, I transcribe all my own interviews. Right. I have so many friends who use transcription services and I did that. I got lazy. Right. I'll, I'll be honest with you. The very last there's one chapter in roadies where I it, it was, I did it at the, at the very end and I was really mentally tired and I went, it. I'm going to use one of these transcription services. Right. And they were really good. Came back within 48 hours and had everything and it was meticulous. It actually ended up being the hardest chapter to write because oh. I hadn't listened to that person's voice right? and I hadn't listened to the nuances and the emphasis. And I find I write really easily. Like I can write, you know, eight to 10,000 words a day of semi-usable text. Right? Oh you know, my God. But, <laughs> but I, that's because I've lived with, and one finger too, I will add, uh, <laughs> that's because I've lived with that voice 
and that, all of that information mm. for all of those horribly long, arduous, back-breaking hours mm. that it takes to do the transcription. So by the time I finished transcribing, you know, all of or the majority of a four-hour conversation, I know exactly what I want to write. Yes, I yes. know the story. I know how it starts. I know how it ends. I know what's important. I know what's not important. And so... So I think I think transcribing your own tapes is really important. Exercising is really important. People say to me, writing's hard work, and I go, you bet it is. Physically, I find it harder than than mentally. You know, yeah. you, you you are actually having to sit in a seat for you know seven, eight, ten. You know, I walk a real lot. I force myself to get up. You know, you want to write like Stuart Cooper, get a dog. Right, you know, because it has to be walked on a regular basis, okay, and uh, and that that is great thinking time. Uh, when you you know, it, it's just when you get that nudge going. If you don't take me out right now, there's going to be a disaster, and you're going to have to clean it up. Uh, that is a really good break. And the other thing, I look the third US for three. I have a really fabulous publisher, Matthew Kelly, and he he leads me to read very widely whilst I'm writing a book, but he never recommends books about music. Mm. He, 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 will, he will tell me to, he will suggest that I read, um, you know, in the last couple of books, I've read books about um, the stock market in America. I've read book, a book about uh, something that wasn't the perfect storm. I think maybe it was. It was a book about a, a bunch of sailors that got, um, swept out to sea. Uh, I read uh, an amazing sports writer um, called uh, Jack, was it Jack Smith, um, and, a, and a, an astonishing piece about a runner, and it's got a, an astonishing ending, which I won't give away because mm-hmm. part of the power of it is is the conclusion. Um, and so he he would just go, why don't you, you know? And, and when I was right, he said, um, oh, there was any at one point he said, oh, you you need to read. Um, you need to read Chris Masters, you know, and it was a great story about that Chris Masters wrote about some organised crime figures out on Sydney Harbour and a dog was irritating one of them. So one of them pulled out a gun, I think it was, and shot the dog. You oh, know, my God. Like, yeah, horrible. But but it was just like, you know, he, he, he leads me to read... Um, terrific pieces of storytelling mm. uh, that are not music related and, and probably quite often they're outside my, my, oh, he got me right. He got me to, to read a, we, you know, he never gets me to, but he suggests, you know, but I always do what he suggests. Uh, he got me to read, you know, a book on the history of Amazon, for instance. You know? Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so and, and, the and, everything uh, store. <laughs> Sorry, the everything yeah, story. Yeah, yeah, so Excellent. so he he will just go. You know, why don't you? You know, uh, you know. And, and if I'm having trouble with something, you go. Oh, why don't you just take a break for a day to read read this? Yeah, you know, right. read this. And so, and I still do it now. You know, for this book on Paul Kelly, um, you know, I'm I'm reading a biography of one of my favourite ever tennis players. You know, this big 700 page biography of of Arthur Ashe. You know, maybe I just want to read about Arthur Rash and I'm justifying it as well. Yeah, as well. But I, no, I'm, I'm reading, you know, and I'm reading a biography of a surfer who I'd never heard of from the 70s. And I'm, I'm just dipping in and out of, of other, you know, biographies to see how people have, have taken lives and made them 
interesting, and I'm particularly interesting if I can find, you know, like I've never heard of this surfer, but I'm already gripped by this book, and I'm going, okay, if I can find stories by people that fundamentally I know nothing about or should probably not be that interested in, and if they can seduce me into reading three, four, five hundred pages, then I'm going okay, and then and then of course I go well. How how are they doing this? You know why? Yeah. Why are they? Why how are they making this person really interesting and and captivating? So that's a really long winded answer. But no, they, it's a great answer. <laughs> there are I think there are three things in there. Aren't yes. There? <laughs> awesome. Well, congratulations on roadies, and um, thank you so much for chatting to us today, Stuart. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Valerie. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you want to be a freelance writer, our five-week course in magazine and newspaper writing, Stage 1, is the fastest way to get there. Step-by-step, you'll explore how to get story ideas, how to approach editors, how to research and structure your articles, plus interviewing skills, industry expectations and much more. You'll enjoy the convenience of learning online in just a couple of hours a week and have your very own tutor to answer all your questions. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash magazine. There you go, Stuart Coop, Al. I'm a little bit gobsmacked by the whole one-finger typing thing and I'm just thinking that he's definitely not doing 2,800 words in 25 minutes with that. No, but he can do 80 words a minute and I did clarify later because I was so incredulous. It's literally one finger, not one finger on both hands, but one finger on one hand and the other hand is the space bar. So I think that's a feat in itself. I want to see that in action. That's just bizarre. Maybe but, you, you know, could introduce on you, some kind of little meme for us where he yes. know, shows us some kind of boomerang that we can share. That would be good. I'd like it. All right. I'll try and convince him. Um, so let's move on then. What are you doing this coming week? Are you off to another writers' festival? Uh, not this week. I'm not off to another writers' festival. What am I doing this week? That's a very valid question. I'm writing. Oh, I forgot to tell you. So, mm. you know, we had the Book Boys whole Les Mis thing and I thought of you oh, because yes. the lady sitting next to me, I've got to tell you yes. this, I'm sitting in the in the audience and it was amazing, by the way. Like it was really, really great. If you happen to be awesome. in the on the South Coast, go and see it. It's at the Shoalhaven Entertainment Centre. Um, yes. Anyway, I'm sitting there in my row and the lady sitting next to me sang every word. Oh, no. Every, I would never do that, you, Alison Val. Tate. I would never do that she in, in a million years. I, I'm indignant that you would even think that I would do that. I would never, ever, ever, ever do you wouldn't that. Be able to, you wouldn't be able to help yourself. She, she, no, she, no, no. I could tell she was trying really hard to suppress it. Like I could. <laughs> like she was really trying so hard to suppress it. But every once in a while it would just burst out. Oh, no, no, no. I would never, ever do that unless it was a sing-along Alamies, which I'm going to in December. Oh, that's Uh, right. You told me that. (laughs) Well, she was having her own sing-along Alamies and it was hilarious. (laughs) But I I understand it though because it is actually really hard not to just, particularly in those big ensemble numbers, you just want to rock in there. You just want to get into it. You want to like just, but I managed to hold myself back. Yeah. But she didn't manage to hold herself back. Well, she did. She wasn't like full voice or anything like that. She was just kind of muttering. 
I let loose in the house and then um, – and which is probably not great when you're singing Book of Mormon because I sing all the words oh. and there's some very bad words in there. And I had no idea our house was isn't that soundproof until I – was outside once and I could hear everything that was going on in it. <laughs> oh, my Lord. Oh, my, my Lord. I know. Uh, anyway, so I'm going to another performance of that. So, and apart from that, oh, I'm sort awesome. of working on my words and just doing my things. I'm oh, cleaning my house. I've got people coming to visit. Like, it's really, you know, not a huge week. I think we can oh, probably I've got stay. To clean my house. Mm. I've got to play pick up, put down. Oh dear. Do you know what I was thinking about you? I, I, I was thinking about you. I was cleaning mm. my house and I was thinking mm. about you and your pick up, put down thing and how much mm. you enjoy it, gamifying it mm. and stuff like that. And I realised yeah. why it doesn't appeal to me. Do you want why? to know why? Because no. most of the stuff I'm picking up, someone else has put down and I pick oh, it up and I put it yeah. down and then someone moves it and it's back, you know, where it's a very frustrating game in this house. That's why oh. I don't do it. Okay. No, this is a mess of my own making, so mm. pick up, put down mm. is um, quite uh, satisfying. Um, but after playing pick up, put down, I am running a workshop for 49 people. 49? Who I know, that's a lot, right? What happened uh, to the 50th one? That's what I want to know. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, 49 people and we're going to need a lot of space because we're going to spread out all of our, you know, um, planning, uh, our index cards and stuff like that because I will be leading them through how to write a business book, how to write their own business book. Wow. Or it won't necessarily be business. It'll be a non-fiction book about their area of expertise. So, you know, it's not going to be – the book isn't necessarily going to be about business. They might be a chiropractor and they'll be writing a book on back pain or something. Mm -hmm. So, yes, that's going to be intense and I will need a drink at the end of it, I imagine. You will. Oh, speaking of which mm. too, I forgot, I am actually sending out bookmarks. That's something I am doing this oh, week. Oh, yes. Um, if, if people buy any book in the Mapmaker Chronicles series or the Adaban Cipher, the Book of Secrets or the Book of Answers – and they would like a signed bookmark to go with that for Christmas, they should yep. uh, send me a message either via my website email or on, um, or on uh, you know, social media. If you tag me on social media, if you, if you post a picture of the book and tag me, you will be like one of my favourite people ever. So feel free to do that. Mm -hmm. um, but I, and I will send you a bookmark uh, signed to go with your gift. That's what I'm awesome. doing. Awesome. That's mm. very cool. Very cool. Mm. All right. So where do we find you online, Al? You will find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You will find me on, uh, where am I? Twitter at, at Al Tate, <laughs> A-L-T-A-I-T. And you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val, where do we find you? You will find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, -O, on Twitter and Instagram and uh, at ValerieKoo.com. But you connect with you can connect with both of us on Facebook in the podcast listener group. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. We'd love to have you in there. It's an awesome group full of fantastic people and um, I just love it. So many, so many um, great members. Thanks for listening, everyone. And we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye.
Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more. 